Welcome to the Revenue Cycle Minute, brought to you by the passionate practitioners of Warbird Revenue Cycle Optimization. The Revenue Cycle Minute is designed to bring you best practice revenue cycle ideas and strategies while enabling your entrepreneurial spirit. Our goal is to educate, entertain, offer new perspectives, and inspire you to take action. Without further delay, welcome to the Revenue Cycle Minute. Welcome to this special edition of the Revenue Cycle Minute brought to you by Warbird Revenue Cycle Optimization, where our mission is to educate, entertain, and inspire you to take action. My name is John Bain, and I am joined today by my colleague, Lori Daigle. Today, we are excited to discuss the 2022 No Surprises Act. We want to thank you for trusting us with your most valuable commodity, your time. Our goal is to provide you with specific detail that can be immediately incorporated into your revenue cycle, thereby shortening the learning curve, easing implementation, and facilitating success. Our team at Warbird Revenue Cycle Optimization is comprised of passionate practitioners. Our team has decades of experience performing every function within the revenue cycle. This allows us the ability to relate and empathize with the concerns, opportunities, and frustration experienced by staff throughout your revenue cycle. Likewise, our revenue cycle optimization team has worked with every type and size of hospital. This allows us to customize solutions that fit your culture, situation, and customers. If you have any questions on the material covered during this presentation or other revenue cycle concerns, our contact detail is provided at the end of the slide deck. Please feel free to email, call, or text. We want to be your revenue cycle resource. Let's get started. Today, we will summarize the No Surprises Act and discuss the requirements, responsibilities, and the necessary steps for compliance. Today, you will understand the expectations of the Act and use the provided information to develop an action plan or validate your current process. The discussion will allow you to create checklists, assign responsibilities, establish timelines, and create productive meetings to review and manage your progress. I want to bring Lori into the conversation now. Lori has reviewed the No Surprises Act and distilled the content into actionable components. Welcome, Lori. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. Very excited about this. Thank you very much for putting this content together. So let's move forward and let's start, if we can, with a definition of the No Surprises Act start actually with defining some of the phrases that are used in the No Surprises Act, because this is actually a law. This differs from CMS policies or HHS policies that we might have to comply with, because this is actually a law. So it's important that we understand the terms that are used. The recognized amount is the amount that's specified under state law for plans regulated by state law. These would be things like Medicaid of the state. Some commercial payers have chosen to follow what each state defines as the recognized amount, but it's really for those plans regulated by the state. The qualified payment amount is the median of the contracted rate as determined by all plans of a plan sponsor or all coverage offered by health insurer in the same insurance market. So this is what the commercials have to follow. They have to establish a qualifying payment amount that is the median of all of their individual plans. The out-of-network rate, if it's specified by state law in the state, then the state determines the out-of-network rate. Otherwise, it's either agreed upon by the provider in the plan 
or what we call the independent dispute resolution amount. The independent dispute resolution is the process in which any plan can mediate with a provider or a hospital to come up with an agreed upon payment for anything that is affected by the surprise billing components. The specified state law is that individual law of that state that provides for a method to pay providers in these independent dispute resolutions. What the No Surprises Act does is it basically limits the cost sharing that a private health insurance can apply to a patient for an out-of-network benefit. It recognizes that lots of times patients will, in good faith, go to an in-network provider and receive services from an out-of-network provider. Like, for instance, they will go to a hospital that's in-network and receive a service from an out-of-network emergency room doctor or radiologist reading or a pathologist that they have may have no contact with and no understanding that that provider is out of their network. And in the past, that always applied additional cost sharing, higher coinsurance, higher deductibles, and things like that. This law is seeking to mitigate that. If the patient is going to a provider that they either thought was in-network or it's an emergency, the provider rather responsibility is they cannot bill patients more than the in-network cost sharing if it applies to the No Surprises Act. They have to have a payment or denial from that third-party payer before they can send that statement because they have to know how that third-party payer is processing the claim. All payments and deductibles have to apply to the out-of-pocket maximum. There can't be anything that weighs that, and the out-of-pocket maximum can't be increased for these no-surprises billing. The provider will negotiate a payment with that third-party payer, and if they're dissatisfied with that, they can begin a 30-day open negotiation period where they work with that payer to come to an agreement on what the payment should be. They have four days to notify the other payer so the third-party payer can initiate it or the provider can initiate it. They have four days to notify the other party, and then the Secretary of Health and Human Services also has to be notified. That kicks off that independent dispute resolution process. The health plan has to provide a benefit for emergency services that is, even if it's an out-of-network provider, an emergency service has to be provided without prior authorization and without regard to whether the facility is in-network or out-of-network. It has to be regardless of other terms of the plan, except for exclusions of a coordination of benefits. Now, there is some definition and requirements for what is considered an emergency. The health plan can't deny emergency based on an after-effect assessment of the care provided. That definition or that language within the No Surprises Act is a little ambiguous and it does get described. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. The No Surprises Act also bars balance billings for out-of-network air ambulance services, but not for services provided by ground ambulance. So ground ambulance is not impacted by the No Surprises Act. Providers and facilities must post a one-page disclosure notice summarizing the No Surprises Act surprise billing protections on their public website and give it to each patient for whom they provide No Surprises Act covered services. This is really a big impact to registration. You have to get the insurance right because you have to know whether the No Surprises Act applies or not. 
So, Lori, let me just ask you a question. So, should the disclosure notice be considered a legal document and be authored maybe by the hospital's attorney? Or is there a standard form that CMS or the payers provide to use? CMS actually did come up with a templated package they call the assistance package. The link to that is provided in this presentation on the last page. Interesting, their one-page disclosure notice is actually two pages. So you don't have to use what they provide, but you can use what they provide. Whether or not it's considered a legal document, I would say is under dispute. Somebody can certainly say that it didn't provide them with the protections or understanding they needed. So if you choose not to use CMSs, it's probably a good idea to have what you build for yourself reviewed. That's great. Thank you. So the emergency health facility, the healthcare facility, or the practitioner within that facility cannot balance bill patients for out-of-network emergency care performed. What that means, it can't balance bill. It means you can't bill more than the payer says you should. It can't bill more than what is established as that independent dispute resolution amount or the negotiated rate. If the care takes place at an out-of-network facility or it's at an in-network facility, but some portion of the care was provided by out-of-network providers. The facility, in terms of the definition of an emergency facility, is the hospital emergency room, a freestanding emergency room, and urgent care centers that are licensed to provide emergency services. You would have to understand how your urgent care center is licensed and the definitions and the understanding between a walk-in center and an urgent care center. Emergency care includes screening and stabilization treatments sought by patients who believe they are experiencing a medical emergency or active labor. And this is one of the things that gets very tricky on what is considered an emergency. So that actually begs the question. So what kind of policies and procedures really do the hospital need to create and implement to kind of comply? Because this just can't happen. Someone's got to kind of put a structure around this. It would be similar to MTALA, the structure for MTALA and the medical screening required by MTALA. If you are following MTALA and you're providing that medical screening, if you determine that stabilization is required, that is included by MTALA as well. So if you have always had that policy where you provide the care regardless and you're not necessarily following to the letter of law of MTALA, you have to take a look at that practice and see if it still works with you for the No Surprises Act. Okay, so that makes sense. So in reality, who should write these policies and who should be part of the overall approval process? You mentioned Mtala. Is this like a revenue cycle thing or are some other multidisciplinary team really needed to put together since we're dealing with billing and registration and admissions and everybody else? I think that depends on the facility. Some facilities have a very structured mechanism in place for approving policies and procedures and crafting policies and procedures. They have templates and processes in place. Others do not. It might be the director or manager of each affected area, for instance, patient access, emergency room, etc. It should go up through compliance and through some other approval process, maybe to the CFO or to the director of each area. But I would take these very seriously and make sure that these policies and procedures are well-crafted, well-understood, approved through the process, consistent with one another, and each and every person that has a piece of it understands their role. 
That's great. Thank you. So when we talk about the post-screening stabilization care that's included in the emergency room, until the physician determines that the patient can safely travel to another in-network facility using non-medical transport, they are still being stabilized under this law. That patient has to be able to travel themselves using non-medical transport. The facility where they're being transported to has to be available and willing to accept the patient. The transfer cannot cause the patient what they call any unreasonable burdens. The patient has to have written notice that they are being transferred, and they have to give written consent to be transferred in order during that stabilization process for them to be transferred from one emergency room to another. Okay, so similar to the the last slide, who writes this notice and who should be talking to the patient about this? There is no set requirement in the law who should be talking to the patient about it. It should probably be a medical person that can answer their questions. It would be a good idea to maybe assign this to nurses, give them the structure that they have to explain, but it should be somebody, a nurse or a provider, that can answer their questions. It should not be registration that is handing them a paper saying, because the doctor said so, because the patient does have to agree to and sign it. So in a situation that is an emergency, if an out-of-network provider is involved in that patient's care, whether it's the ED doctor, the radiologist, maybe a surgeon who's called in because of the emergency, they cannot balance bill the patient for services that are provided in network facility without proper notifications. And I'm sorry, these are for non-emergency services. This is for scheduled services, what we would normally call an elective. The non-emergency services included a treatment for the patient, any equipment and devices that are required, any telemedicine service, imaging and lab services, pre-op and post-op services. These are all scheduled events that the patient has to be notified, might have a portion that's performed by an out-of-network provider, and they have to understand that requirement. So up to this point, so this clearly is exceptionally complex overall. We haven't actually talked about what the billing office has to do. So in reality, how does billing know to set this up and then prevent unintentional balance billing for something? I would recommend that the system have edits in place that the payer dictionary should know who is in network and who is out of network. And if it's an out of network provider, it should drop for review before a statement is sent out. So if a patient is having a non-emergency, what we would normally call an elective service, being scheduled, they can waive the rights under the No Surprises Act. They can say they still want a particular provider involved in their care, even though they, they're out of network. There are certain things you can apply waivers to and things you cannot apply a waiver to. A waiver cannot be applied to any complication that arises during a procedure and requires the assistance out of out-of-network provider. It has to be performed in advance, this waiver. So if during a procedure, another doctor has to be called in that is out-of-network, the waiver does not apply to them, even if it has been completed. It doesn't apply to diagnostic services within the procedure, anesthesiology, pathology, radiology, neonatology, non-PAR providers, if there is no participating provider option. So if the patient is saying that they need this particular procedure and there is no participating provider option available, 
then you can't have them sign a waiver. And this would include assistant surgeons, hospitalists, and intensivists. So how does a patient waive their rights? Is there going to be a physical waiver that they're going to sign? And if there is, you know, where is that going to reside? And ultimately, how does everyone after that takes place know that it's there and that there's a waiver in place? So billing where they may not have access to the chart, for instance, how, how do they know? So there is a waiver, a, a form. There is a form that has to be completed in a recommended one or a is available in that package that CMS has provided. You don't have to use their waiver, but they do provide one. So it could be used maybe as a template if you choose not to use it. The patient does have to sign the waiver. The law doesn't say where the physical form resides. It does say it's not in the medical record. So it would have to be filed somewhere, scanned, probably where you would scan the consent and other forms like that and kept for the um, on the patient's record. The provider that is seeking the patient waiver has to give the patient a detailed written consent, that detailed form, at least 72 hours prior to the scheduled appointment or three hours before a same-day appointment. So they have to give them some space to make that decision. It can't be handed to them as they're entering a procedure. The consent form has to be provided separate from other forms, not part of a packet. So it can't be hidden or tucked into another packet that they may overlook their signing away things. It has to indicate whether the preauthorization is required for that procedure, what in-network providers are available in addition to these out-of-network providers. It has to include a good faith cost estimate for the total bills provided for the proposed out-of-network care. So not necessarily just the procedure, but any necessary follow-up care like physical therapy if or you know follow up visits things like that supplies braces things like that cms has not defined the audit and penalty expectations so they haven't said that we are going to audit in this fashion and we're going to apply these penalties yet so right now that preauthorization is required that good faith estimate is required that waiver and written consent is required but they don't have a mechanism right now to enforce it. They're saying more information to follow. That doesn't mean they won't retro review once they determine what the process should be. So this protection for the uninsured, this good faith estimate has to be provided after an item or service is scheduled or upon request. It's usually expected to be part of that conversation saying this service is going to be scheduled and the reason why. If the patient is talking or thinking about it, even prior to scheduling and asks for that good faith estimate, then it has to be provided at that time. It has to detail any other item and service that would reasonably be expected or to be provided as part of the same scheduled item or service. It includes surgery, labs or tests, and anesthesia that might be used during the operation does not include pre-surgery appointments or PT following services. Now, it's important to note, this is the good faith estimate. The patient can't sign a waiver for anesthesia. It should be included as part of the estimate, but it's not one of those things they can sign away their agreement about the cost sharing. The estimate has to be provided within one business day after scheduling a procedure that will be performed within three business days. It has to be within three business days after scheduling a procedure that is going to be 10 days in the future. And within three business days after an uninsured or self-pay consumer requests the estimate. 
So if they, even if it's scheduled for, say, a six-month follow-up MRI, within three days of them requesting the estimate, it has to be provided. So this really seems to be aligned with and kind of illustrates the importance of pricing transparency. So for hospitals to be compliant and exceed patient expectations, they need to have complete control of their pricing to be able to come up with accurate estimates. That's fair, right? Right. It is really in line with pricing transparency requirements. The estimate that you provide as part of this good faith estimate has to be reconciled with what you have online. So if you hand the patient a good faith estimate and then they go online and see that things are priced at zero, for instance, on your online pricing transparency because it's charge editable and you never scrubbed your zeros out, that could be a problem. Really, you have to make sure that your file online in accordance with pricing transparency matches the estimates you're providing. The estimate has to provide an itemized list of each item or service grouped by provider and the facility offering care. So the facility fees are itemized. The individual provider fees would be itemized. Include specific details in the expected charge. This is the price for physical therapy. This is the price for the implant, if they would be charged. These are the prices for anesthesiology. It has to be itemized. A paper electronic copy of the good faith estimates has to be provided. Even if the provider also provides the good faith information to the patient over the phone or verbally in person, they have to also be given some form of a hard copy, whether it's an emailed copy or a paper copy. This has to be written in clear and understandable language. So this is another reason why it is in line with your pricing transparency requirements. That requires your descriptions to be in what they call plain English, and this does as well. You have to have it, particularly if you're pulling it from your charge master, you want to make sure it is in that plain English, something that a layperson could easily understand. The patient can dispute charges that exceed the estimate by $400. This is called the good faith estimate because anything can happen, particularly in a procedure. But if the actual charges, patient responsibility, exceeds the estimate by $400, the patient can dispute it. If they choose to do that, they go through a dispute resolution process. The patient has to pay $25 for that dispute resolution process. If the patient wins, that $25 is credited to their bill. Wow. So this, this is really complex. So who owns this process? Because there's so many different pieces involved here. You know, it almost seems as though the hospital really needs, like you mentioned before, a comprehensive policy and procedure to govern this, right? I mean, because this is not going to happen just by magic. Right. So the processes that you put in place and the policies you put in place have to make sure, for instance, that you stop the statement if the patient is disputing it, that you have some sort of internal review and approval process for this dispute resolution that once it's decided upon, that is outside of the hospital. But do you have, for instance, adjustment codes? What are you going to do with that balance? Who's going to make the decisions? Who's going to mediate with that dispute process? So that all has to be part of your policies and procedures and your understanding. It has to be a cradle-to-grave understanding of the policy, or rather of the regulation. This detailed estimate has to be created for each provider facility, as I said. Take as many rows as necessary to itemize all of the services that could be included. 
add as many individual providers of service as necessary, any supplies or other services tests that may be required as a part of it, detail everything. That detailed estimate has to be created for each provider or facility involved. So if they are leaving your organization, for instance, for outpatient rehab services, that would be included in this estimate, but on a separate form. Each of these individual forms, you're going to add as many rows as necessary and as many individual providers as necessary. Now, I mentioned rehab. When I say individual providers, the rehab facility is one provider. You don't have to itemize every therapist or every assistant or aide to that therapist. They will all be on the same bill. But if there's a provider who has a separate bill and a separate fee assigned to it, they have to be itemized. So in this presentation, I've included a copy of that form from the template that Medicare recommends. Again, you don't have to use this exact one, but make sure you get in all of the details that Medicare requires. Because even if, if you have your own, but you're satisfying everything they have, you should be all set. So, wow, this just seems so complex and intricate. So when we're looking at things, so who in the hospital should own the creation, implementation, and maintenance of these forms? Again, it really organizations are different, particularly smaller hospitals where people wear a lot of hats. It should go through compliance. It should be at some point, compliance should give their stamp of approval to the entire process. Who owns each individual part will depend on the organization, but I would recommend that compliance look at the whole thing. And probably finance should be part of it as well because there are a lot of moving parts for finance in this. So, and just to confirm, because you just mentioned this a second ago, this applies to every hospital, regardless of size, the smallest critical access to the largest multinational teaching hospital, right? Everybody. Everybody. Even freestanding emergency rooms and non-hospitals. Okay, so there's really nobody that gets away. I mean, so everybody has to have something in place to handle this. Every facility. Every yes. facility. So just as a point of reference, too, if people are looking at this and they see these forms that you have, people could use these forms and tables that we've included in the presentation as a process to move forward, right? Yes. Yeah, so Medicare or CMS has put together a packet of all of the forms that are required so that to make it a little bit easier for you, you can use all of their forms. So once you have this good faith estimate, once you have created this estimate, the idea is the patient will take this estimate to their insurance company, and that triggers the health plans to provide an advanced explanation of benefits. You do your estimate, the patient takes it to their insurance company and says, this will be scheduled in the future. How much am I going to have to pay out of pocket? The payer should then send an advanced explanation of benefits saying what the patient's balance will be, what their out-of-pocket should be. It would give the patients the information, not just the total cost of the out-of-network care, but what their co-insurance would be, what their deductible will be, how much will apply to their out-of-pocket max. Once that process is complete, the patient has to give their consent for the out-of-network treatment if they choose to move forward. They can do so on a provider-by-provider -provider basis or a service-by-service -service basis. They can say, I want the procedure, but I don't want this doctor involved in my care because that explanation of benefits came back too high, for instance. Or they can say, I want everything that was included in the estimate. It's the patient's decision. 
And they can withdraw their consent at any time prior to the surgery, prior to the minute, if it's a procedure, that they go under any type of anesthesia. They can do it on the day of if they want. The provider or facility has to give the patient a copy of all the consent forms they sign, and they has to keep a rec- rather they have to keep a record of it for seven years, just like many other legal forms in medicine. They have to submit the consent forms to the patient's health plan. If a patient declines to waive the No Surprises Act protection, an out-of-network provider can refuse to provide any non-emergency treatment. So if the patient says, yes, I have all these forms, I got my explanation of benefits, I'm not going to sign it, but I still want the care, the provider can at that point refuse. Unless there is no other in-network option or if there's a law within that state that's barring such a refusal. The provider cannot pressure a patient into waiving their rights. They can't delay necessary treatment or charge cancellation fees of existing appointments, even on the date of service. Laura, this is just great. Thank you so much for your hard work researching the topic and making it understandable. This is clearly a complicated topic that requires focus, structure, and active management. So as a summary, can you just give our listeners a few immediate steps that they can take today to ensure a compliant process? Sure. So as we talked about before, I would start by reviewing your standard charge files online and your shoppable service file. Make sure they're in plain language, they're easy to understand, and they will match up with any estimates that you um, provide. Draft and approve the standard estimate form, the waiver, the notification, everything you need. You can use that packet. There's a link at the end of this presentation. Identify the team that's responsible for providing the estimates, the waivers, the discussions with the patients, and train that team appropriately. Make sure everybody speaks with one voice and one message. What you don't want is to have different people having different interpretations, and maybe during the course of this process, the patient is getting multiple messages. Create standard disclosure notices and post them prominently on your website in all patient access areas and any registration area. And you have to have that patient handout, for instance, for emergency services. So have a patient handout ready as well. Educate the patient access on the legal requirement to register the patients appropriately. We've always wanted patient access to make sure they capture the insurance correctly. Now, because of the No Surprises Act, they have to get the insurance right. If they register a patient as an in-network that is actually out of network, you may inadvertently violate some of the requirements of the No Surprises Act. Review all your current policies and procedures and update as necessary to comply with this No Surprises Act. For schedule, make sure the insurance is captured and verified to ensure the facility provider enrollment can be verified. Make sure elective procedures are scheduled to allow for time for the estimates to be completed if necessary. For patient access, make sure the insurance is captured and verified at each visit to ensure provider enrollment, both for the facility and the individual providers involved. It has to be verified timely so that accurate quotes can be offered, the disclosure form can be provided, et cetera. Make sure that you have that form prominently posted and provided to each patient. For financial counseling, make sure they have the accurate and timely estimates. They know how to get it. They know how to have that conversation with each patient. 
keep that packet separate from all other information, billing, I would create edits to identify all non-participating insurance and review any edits, any balances prior to sending a statement to make sure all of the elements of the No Surprises Act was followed. Well, thank you so much, Lori. This is great stuff. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. If you have any questions, I encourage you to reach out and get in contact with us. We're happy to help. The No Surprises Act is complex and solutions may involve different team members across your revenue cycle. Reach out if you need assistance. We really do want to be your revenue cycle partner. Please use these links to download and review the components we've discussed. Bookmark the pages and use them as a reference throughout your journey. As we bring this discussion to a close, it's important to understand that the 2022 No Surprises Act should be considered an opportunity. It's an opportunity to validate your processes, leverage your best practices, and address deficiencies. Effective communication with your patients allows you to showcase your hospital, services, and people. Effectively managing the No Surprise Act will not be easy, but if it's done correctly, the outcome can significantly impact your financial ability and customer experience. We hope you found the information provided helpful today and that you use this detail to validate your progress to date or as an action item to organize a process to meet the deadlines and be compliant. If you need any assistance, please reach out to see how we can be of any help. On behalf of Lori and the entire Warbird Revenue Cycle Optimization team, we want to thank you for spending time with us today. Until next time, this is John Bain reminding you that revenue cycle success is never an accident. It's always the direct result of daily focused action. We hope today's discussion has inspired you to take action and make the 2022 No Surprises Act a vehicle to validate your revenue cycle and improve communication and participation. Until our next discussion, be safe, be entrepreneurial, and take action. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Revenue Cycle Minute. If you have any questions about this topic, suggestions for a future podcast, or questions in general, please email us at jbain at warbirdcp.com. That's J-B-E-H-N at W-A-R-B-I-R-D-C-P dot com. Our goal is to provide content that is meaningful and represents your needs. Please visit our website at www.warbirdconsulting.com where you can contact us directly, receive industry updates, and gain access to on-demand webinars. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen and leave us a five-star review. Remember, success within your revenue cycle is a direct reflection of focus and expectation. We hope this podcast provided new perspectives and most importantly, prompts you to take action. We want the Revenue Cycle Minute to be your go-to revenue cycle podcast. Please come back soon and join us for another episode. Until then, stay well, be entrepreneurial, and take action.